But I've always thought of it as meaning making and connection and ultimately engagement in the world. And, you know, it's not that the teacher has to be mindful of edutainment. It's how do I help you connect and bring out your full potential? The root of education is educere. And that just means to draw out. It's one of the, the main definitions is to draw out. And I always thought as an educator, my goal or as a leader is to draw out your future in you and your your potential, your very best. I'm Andy Vasley, and today on the show, author, educational consultant, and presenter, Rick Warmly. He's here to talk about how he helps school leaders better create the conditions for their educational organizations to thrive. You're listening to the Run Your Life Podcast with host Andy Vasily. So for those of you who are familiar with Rick Warmley's work, he's amazing at what he does. If you've had the good chance to hear him speak in person at a conference, I know he does several keynote speeches around the world at educational conferences. I think the first time I heard him speak was back in, I think, 2012 in the Philippines at a big conference there. But If you've been lucky enough to spend time with Rick, listening to him speak or attending his workshops, you will know firsthand the impact of his work. Uh, I'm grateful to have him back on my show for a second time. The first time he was on the show was back in 2017, and in this initial conversation, we explored the work he had done up until that point, training teachers and educational leaders around the areas of assessment feedback, and differentiated instruction. Rick's work, to give you more backstory, uh, has received numerous media coverage over the years. Some examples include the Good Morning America show, Hardball with Chris Matthews, the Washington Post, the National Geographic, and Good Housekeeping magazines, among many other publications. In today's show, Rick and I will explore early days in his life, very interesting stories he shares and how this journey went on to shape who he became as an educator and ultimately the work he has done as a writer, presenter and trainer of teachers, principals, superintendents, school boards and business organizations. As you will soon hear, Rick's childhood was filled with curiosity, wonder service to community, exploration of the outdoors, and even finding dead bodies. Pretty creepy stuff, but he shares a little snippet into that experience and some of the things he learned in general from being a very curious child who connected deeply with the outdoors. So here's Rick talking about early days in his life. Okay, Rick, it's uh, fantastic to have you back on the show. And I just mentioned that our first podcast was in April 2017, five years ago. And uh, when I looked up that fact today, I was like, it doesn't seem like five years since our last conversation, but it's been five years. So uh, in advance to our conversation, I want to thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you very much. It's an honor to to be in your company and to do this again. But you know, last five years have been kind of busy for a lot of people. So the time flies. Yeah, absolutely. And just to set the context, I want to ask you this. If we were to do a flyover of early life, uh, what is it we would see? Where did you grow up and what was early life like for you? Oh, I, I love my early life, my formative years. I'm so grateful to my parents for what they provided. I, I grew up in Northern California along the coast. So Santa Cruz Mountains and then all the beaches and Monterey and Uh, Point Lobos, Big Sur. So a lot of it was scouting and hiking through the Sierra Nevadas and skiing every possible time, water skiing and snow skiing, you know, right over that. And then a heck of a lot of just, you know, as a young kid playing around in the creeks, building Mm. all kinds of uh, uh, marinas for a water life and um, 
making forts in the trees and climbing redwoods. A lot of them, you know, uh, some of them were older and it, it, they'd cut off, you know, halfway up and we would climb up them and then inside the redwood tree, because, you know, they're so massive there in California and just doing that. Oh, I did. I, I will tell you that. I don't know if I'm just a weird kid, but I did as a youth find two different dead bodies, one while water skiing in a lake and wow. uh, one by hiking and passed a pond and it was halfway out in the water, out of the water. So I had a lot of cool adventures, uh, that, mostly in the outdoors growing up in Northern California. Uh, how did and, how did seeing the dead bodies uh, land with you at such an early age? Well, I have a younger brother and I will tell you, one of them was so, you know, the eyeballs had been eaten out by fish, you know, and had been in the water for about three days. It was a 16 year old boy who'd, whose head had been hit by a propeller of a ski boat. Mm. So it was, it was pretty gruesome. And I slept at the bottom of my younger brother's bed for like three nights. I was so freaked out. It was like when I was 12 or something at 13. And, and I just slept down there because I wanted the comfort of another body, you know, in, yeah. in my bed. But, um, it, it, you know, weirdly, I went on to want to become a doctor. And I did autopsies in high school and middle school. My mom was a pathologist or cytologist and pathologist. And so it was it was a weird part of my life. But, you know. It's part of that that drama. You know, when I was growing up, they would just say, go outside, we'll see you in six hours, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so we lived near mountains and I would just go hiking up or horseback riding or whatever it was. There was a, a stable that would rent horses to us and we would go out by ourselves as, as young teenagers or, or kids. And we would find fossils, but there's so many fossils near my house. And so we would dig for fossils. Um, sometimes, you know, it's a hot area. We would come home and there'd be a rattlesnake cooling itself in our bathtub in our house. <laughs> and so we'd have to get rid of the rattlesnake and bury it at least four feet down because our dog would dig it up and, you know, be poisoned by it. It was just a really cool, adventurous time. But I got also got a lot of injuries. I got an ax in my head at one point. We were digging things and I leaned over and the kid just slammed the ax down. Um, <laughs> I jumped out of trees. And I landed on a board with a nail sticking up and the nail went right through my shoe up through the laces and came out. So I just <laughs> pulled the shoe and, you know, my foot off the nail and walked home to my friend's house with this huge puddle of bloody marks, you know, <laughs> behind me as I splooshed at home and, and hosed off. It was just a, a weird adventurous time, but I think it, you know, I, there was a lot of support and but a lot of uh, encouragement to go take risks and not worry about some of the things that we're worried about today, uh, which I think just really helped form who I am and you know, in the education world as well. So as you can see, Rick is very thoughtful and quite humorous about his past and what he learned about the world through his early experiences. It's really easy to see why he ended up embarking on such an amazing career in education. Rick challenges us early on in this episode to really think more deeply about the purpose of education and what school is truly for. Listen to what he has to say about this now. So there is, you know, it sounds like there was a real sense of autonomy there and, and independence and connection yeah, to yeah. nature. And it would seem oh, yeah. in the work that you do, it would seem that through the lens of curiosity, a lot of that was uh, deeply embedded within you from an early age. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, my parents were absolutely keen on service. You know what? It, it's not what the world gives can give you or you are owed or entitled to. It's how are you going to contribute to the world? You know, what are you going to do to serve it and make it a better place? And so, you know, twice a month we would go work with nursing home residents. My dad played great guitar. And so we just sing songs and play with them and, and, and be with them for a little bit. Whenever there was an opportunity to clean up an area, our family was always first to sign up. It was a natural part. It was it was our oxygen our breathing. And we didn't see that as loss or I'm not able to go do other things. I'm cheated out of it because I have to do this. It was, this is actually connecting. And I think that's a big part of education. I was uh, tweeting with John Warner, who's uh, on Twitter. I highly recommend his work. And he, he writes books about writing, but also education and so on. 
And he talked about the New York Times uh, series just recently, What is School For? And a lot of people sent in their essays. But the one that he was writing about in his essay most recently was School's About Engagement. And I really like that, that it's about finding a way to engage in life and humanity. It might be about making intelligent voting citizens and creating some utility for our economy that you could. I get it. But I've always thought of it as meaning making and connection and ultimately engagement in the world. And, you know, it's not that the teacher has to be mindful of edutainment. It's how do I help you connect and bring out your full potential? The root of education is educere, and that just means to draw out. It's one of the, the main definitions, is to draw out. And I always thought as an educator, my goal, or as a leader, is to draw out your future in you and your, your potential, your very best, so that you can engage fully and, and meaningfully, thoughtfully in the world. And I just liked his essay, and it, it really supports what my parents instilled in me, which is this idea of Hey, it's not about what you're getting out of it, but what you're contributing to it. And in that, you will find love, you will find meaning and the happiness that you seek. And then in the 80s, you know, I start I I really noticed that started turning, you know, as I was, you know, started teaching in 80, 81. Um, it, it, things just started turning around to, you know, what's left for me. I can't extend myself because I'm just trying to conserve my energy for me. And that that it's beginning a constant struggle and i think it's only intensified as people have become more exhausted with toxic whatever in our yeah. lives of late as an educator myself for more than two decades i have come to understand that my role whether it be teaching students coaching the teachers who work with students or coaching leaders it really is about unlocking human potential in order to see what's truly possible and I've come to understand that it's even more important in this work to understand the barriers that get in the way of people doing their best work and when I think of this I really believe that every one of us should have our own North Star that guides our work And we should feel compelled to share what is within us as we pursue our own forms of excellence in order to bring out the best in those who we serve. In the following clip, Rick will share what he now feels most compelled to get out into the world based on his own work in education over the past four decades. know Wayne Dyer I was listening to one of his videos a a few weeks ago and he he talks about this kind of metaphor that we all have music playing inside of us we all have songs to create or poems or stories to write or we have art to share with the world and it really is a metaphor for human potential our strengths our talents and the quote is don't betray your own music do what you have to do what you have to do to feel complete and to feel as if you are fulfilling your destiny. So when you think about your own life, Rick, and your own work and everything you've done, what is it that you now feel most compelled to share with the world? Oh, good golly. I would, I would say I'm a new grandpa. So my grandchildren, you know, right away to prepare the world so they can own it, you know, on their own, yeah. in their own terms. What I feel most compelled to, to contribute yeah, maybe um, to contribute based on your learning, the trajectory of your career, the last yeah. five years since our last conversation. I just, I, I think it's a sense of hope and not despair. So many people operate from despair and it filters everything they decide, the way they see the world and everything as, a play, as opposed to a place of hope. So I don't want to be rose colored glasses, but in the midst of the reality we all face, there is hope and absent hope, people have nothing left to lose. And so they do things that can be illegal or harmful to themselves or to others. And then this idea that collectively we are better than just the one of us. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, team of rivals, if you want to go to, to that sort of thing, that I I wanted people to feel like it's a value to them to spend time with people who disagree with them that are different from them to get out from the echo chamber. 
mm-hmm. so to speak, because that's so insular, you now limit what you experience in the world. When I travel abroad, and I know you you actually do that, you live it beautifully. Mm-hmm. When I travel abroad, I just see America and society and education in dramatically different lenses. And they're so much more powerful when I come back to North America, where I am right now, and then I try to bring that news. But there are a lot of people who have never done that or never humbled themselves to be in a place where they don't know the culture or customs or the, the you know protocols or whatever it is. And they have to, they start developing an empathy for immigrants. Like for example, to North America, we're having a huge problem with the way people respond in, in a loving, constructive, compassionate manner to those manner to those who come you know, to North America, some sort, what do we do with them? And there's all kinds of politics associated with that. And I think if I could help people develop a sense of empathy and the meaningful connection and joy that comes from that, that would be a worthy pursuit. But I'm also mindful that I don't want to beat a dead horse, but there are so many implicit biases and and, and prejudices inside us that go unrecognized, of course, that actually diminish others. So to help people say, let me help you recognize some of those, and then let me help you find a constructive response to that, to be attentive and remove that, and then really discover how unbelievably beautiful it is and exciting it is to be with people that you don't think of as less than and to see them through this new opening to honor their narrative as much as you look at your own inherited narrative and not let your narrative uh, diminish or you know demean anybody else or prejudice yourself against others. So I am hot and heavy into how do you have the difficult conversations about racism or transgender challenges, um, uh, different churches and how they get along and faith beliefs, but also uh, the the sexual orientation, but different class. So, oh, I expect less of you because you're impoverished. I expect more of you because you're affluent. How what teachers and students bring in each morning actually dramatically affects what happens in the dynamic of that class, more so than your instructional design, that I need to know what's inside you and pull on that So I want to draw and honor your culture. It kind of like you have a seat at learning's table, not you're denied that Mm. you see yourself in what I do. And the idea that as a leader, that I would coach you a little bit like instructional coaching, Mm. where it's not me giving you the ideas, but I ask the questions to get you to arrive at that discovery yourself. Mm-hmm. That I, I don't tell you my opinion, but I ask the questions to get you there. So it's about agency, mm-hmm. that you are an agent of your own experience, your own learning for students and for teachers. I think that would be pretty powerful that I could give you a skill set, but also a disposition. You know, the research in the last 15, 20 years about disposition and educators is huge, how it dramatically affects things. And as I'm working with teachers today, a lot of them that are coming out are, are so angst ridden. Uh, there's so much anxiety going on in their lives, or they're just darn tired because the last two and a half years worth of yeah. COVID, there's there's a, a sour disposition in some places. And I think this year, I don't know about where you are and where our listeners are, but this year we're finding a little bit more oxygen again, mm-hmm. and we're, we're rediscovering stamina that we thought had lost permanently, but now has come back. So anyway, it's rambling, but that's where I am. When I reflect on the constant growth and learning that is needed to be an educator, whether a teacher in the classroom or a leader of a school or even an instructional coach, I'm always drawn back to a powerful quote from John Dana, which is this, who dares to teach must never cease to learn. And one of the questions I often ask the people I have on my show is about accountability and how it is they hold themselves accountable for their own growth and learning, especially when no one else is holding them accountable but themselves. I spoke to Rick about this question to pick his brains about how he has continually put pressure on himself to be the learner he needs to be in order to best serve those who he trains 
whether that be a teacher, principal, or superintendent. This is what he had to say. And when you think about putting pressure on yourself to continue being the learner that you want to be, and you think about the last couple of years and your learning, like how do you continue to hold yourself accountable for your own growth and learning in order to continue to evolve? You know, you're a presenter, you're an author, you work with teachers all over the place and educational leaders, but with that comes a tremendous responsibility to continue to grow yourself. So, you know, you've been at this a long time. So how do you hold yourself accountable and, and how do you place pressure on yourself to continue to learn and be the learner that you want in the people that you coach and, and run workshops for? Well, I, I always worry when people don't care enough about you to correct you, you know, when everybody's silent, oh, how do I know I'm doing well as a principal? How do I know I'm doing well as a teacher? There's absence of parent complaint. That's not sufficient. That's not how you become a professional. So I invite critique, but I conduct myself as, oh, Rick is revisable. So we will go and tell Rick when he has done wrong, when he is offended, uh, when he's got the the fact wrong, and Rick will accept that. I've had people over my career tell me that they normally wouldn't critique another teacher but because they don't think they would listen, but they felt like I would listen and I would actually think deeply about that. And to me, that, that's absolutely one of the things I want to have as a reputation is that Rick is very changeable. So do I act and I, I seek out the critique? Absolutely. At all times. Do I read voraciously all the latest in pedagogical understanding, leadership understanding, even you know how it interacts with the larger dynamic of the larger business world and the communities? Absolutely. I stay up to date. I can't use information from 10 years ago to serve today's needs, although there are things that, things that transcend that, that, that sense of time. As a presenter, I never want to become a talking head. So people often ask, well, when have you been in school? Well, I coach teachers in their classrooms and principals in their schools and superintendents and sometimes school board members and, and curriculum developers and instructional coaches all the time. So I'm literally in their environment. Rather than just from afar, I write some articles pontificating from on high the way I think mm. the world should be without being, you know, boots on the ground, you know, mm. so to speak. So I, I value that. There are times, though, when I could feel like I drift so far away, particularly in technology, because it mm. changes so darn fast, literally in a school building, at least assigned to one on a regular basis. So I have to go out of my way and I, I just make a promise. I will learn five new tech apps every single year, if not more. I will become so familiar with them so I can share whether, you know, their legitimacy, how they might apply. Two, I will focus on developing my own creativity for its own sake, not Mm -hmm. just when I have to solve a problem, but I will overtly go choose a creative endeavor and something that scares me. Do the stuff that scares you, so to speak. And, uh, you you know, know Dylan William, he tells a, a wonderful story about the fact that well, in one lifetime is never enough to learn all we need to know about education. So you you, you keep learning until you die. That's just it. And that's one of his, his quotes. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. But what that does is it gives me humility. Like, I don't know if this is going to work. So I'm more attentive and more vigilant to try to make it work rather than succumb to complacency. So I'm putting myself in creative risk-taking positions. Like, I, you know, I, I'm a white guy, middle-class, cisgender and I'm talking very candidly about racism and and all and transgender and all these other things because I don't feel like people of my skin color and, and gender have done enough of that that becoming more aware. Mm-hmm. And um and, and the problem is I have neighbors and community members, colleagues who have a different political persuasion than I do. And so do I say, oh, you must have courage in education. And do I just remain quiet because I don't want to rock the boat? Or do I actually speak up in a way that leads to conversation, not shutting down conversation? So in other words, I'm trying to minimize my own hypocrisy. If I say this, but I don't really do it day in and day out, I'm inauthentic. So when I present, I hope people realize the voice they read in my books and my articles is the exact same guy. 
Mm-hmm. I have run into so many people where I go see them present after reading their work for years, and it's not even close to how they came across on paper. And that freaks me out. And it's a disappointment freaking out. It's it's a, it's, it's a diminishing. I don't, I don't want that. So it was your editor really doing the talking in those writings. And so I want to live very true to who I am. So if you see me in Colorado or in Thailand or here in Virginia, wherever it might be, uh, I would give you the same identity, the same truth as we do that. Um, I think that, you know, that helps me. And then just the idea that I'm worried that what I say isn't helpful. And so I really stop and I think, okay, this is a new idea in education. Is it in alignment with what we know about how the brain learns? If so, let me see if I can make those connections. And then let me see as I coach teachers, if they want to, you know, try that and do that. And I kind of see myself as that conduit coach. You know, I'm a conduit. They don't have time to do the reading and catch up. I get a chance to run in those circles. So I, I hear this and I say, well, here's something you might want to consider out of the batch. And then let's take a look at analyzing its impact on student learning. Always making, you know, connecting the dots. Many teachers yeah. don't even spend time. Sometimes they're exhausted. And I can provide that in a diplomatic, nurturing way where they receive it. Hmm. I think that keeps me focused on constantly learning and remaining humble but there are people who have sent me manuscripts to edit before they submit it to publishers. And I, I edit all over and some famous names in the education world have not talked to me for six months for you know half a year because they were so burned by me editing their work. But my work gets edited all the time. They're not used to being edited. Mm. And I'm like, feed me, Seymour, feed me. If you're in a little <laughs> shop of horrors. How can I possibly move forward? I mean, check this out. What if I said to a teacher, I'm a principal. Hey, I just saw your class. Uh, thank you for letting me step in there. I wonder if you have a few minutes for some feedback. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That teacher, the, the shoulders are getting tense. They realize, <laughs> oh, I screwed up. The principal is going to tell me something bad. This is the way a lot of us react. Yeah. Principals react like that when a superintendent talks. But wait, the idea that. The best feedback is that which is sought is in a number of research books about feedback. How can I possibly do well unless I invite feedback Mm -hmm. rather than be threatened by it or feel like I have to endure it or self-preserve? So this idea that that feedback is a positive in my life, not a negative. There are a lot of friends of mine in the national speaking circuit who never read evaluations because they said it just hurts them too deep and they just can't do it. They'd rather live in their own fantasy of how they did. And I read every single one. And, you know, if there's that one that criticized you, yeah, it burns a little, it stings a little, but it might be something to consider. If, you know, you get a lot of mentions of something that wasn't going well, then really you need need to change. The other one might just be an incidental, they were having a bad day. But the idea when people critique me and I'm, it's getting contentious or whatever, I have to take this idea that they're doing the best they can. And I'm doing the best I can. And in that humanity, we can kind of come to understanding where I grow as a result of what they say. Mm-hmm. And at that, and we'll, we'll move on. And I, I love Annette Bro, who talks about, you know, sometimes when you work with a colleague, you have to decide, is it time for me to be right or to be kind? And there are times when I'll be right tomorrow because they need the, the, the moment to be right. So I'll be that and, and that sort of thing. But I won't listen to somebody critiquing me and develop my rebuttal while they're talking, because then I'm not really listening. So mm-hmm. I is active listening, conflict resolution 101, mm-hmm. right? But I will listen to the point where I can say back to them that they know that I, what they said was heard by me. Then I start figuring out how I might respond thoughtfully to what they said. So a variety of those, those three or four elements, mm-hmm. I think is, is my answer to your question. Yeah, a couple things come alive. I have a quote I want to read to you based on what you just said. And a couple books come to mind. But in particular, when you talk about living your authentic self, um, I think every great leader is able to always stay aligned to their core values. And this book here called uh, Leading with Character by Dr. Jim Lair. Um, He he coached 17 world number ones in his career um, in sport and you know, CEOs and, you know, top athletes. And 
uh, his thing is like all about, you know, aligning, always staying aligned to our core values so that our thoughts, our words, our actions consistently align. Right. Right. And, and if what, I'm out of alignment to be open, to be called on it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I couldn't help but think of this quote on uh, the, in the arena quote, which is, it's not the critic who counts. It's not yeah. the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done it better. The credit belongs to the person who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred with blood, sweat, and dust, who at their best in the end knows the triumph of high achievement and who at worst, if he fails, he fails daring greatly. So that's what you're talking about with being in the arena and not, not writing research papers from your ivory tower, but actually... <laughs> working alongside leaders in a way that empowers them to be their best, but also you receive uh, knowledge and insight in return that makes you better at what you do. Yeah. I, you know, I close a lot of my keynotes uh, with this idea that today's world requires daring acts of pedagogy. And a lot of teachers and principals and superintendents are very concerned, particularly here in the United States and in some of the independent schools, international schools around the world and DOD that, that I visited about towing the political line, even if it's out of alignment with what you know about how students learn and teachers best teach and how I facilitate that experience. And they're very, very afraid of doing that. And here in the United States and maybe in some other places, we have this huge culling of books and book banning and all this stuff going on according to political talking points. And people are looking for skills. Like I get calls all the time. We had a racist incident or we had an incident about the transgender bathrooms or whatever, and it's blowing up. And we have students crying, some teachers crying in the hallways, but we're not allowed to talk about it because the school board says it would just blow up even larger and we can't handle it. So heads in the ground, ostrich, so to speak, the stereotype. And now it's just going to fester. It's going to get worse and worse. And a lot of people don't have really good models, like Congress here in the United States is not a good model of how to have civil discourse yeah. as they do that. But the idea that I would open something up in an act of bravery, and I don't know where it's going to go. And, and this thing that I learned as a leader, whenever you have the contentious policies or issues and challenges, it doesn't always tie up in a nice, neat bow. And you have to be comfortable with three steps forward, two steps back, ambiguity, loose ends. Otherwise, you're going to freak out. Yeah. Learning enterprise is a disorderly thing, not an orderly schematic, because humans are very, very different and you know, teachers and, and students. And so you have to be OK with that instead of this logical sequence. So the idea that I would part ways with the master schedule or master calendar, uh, that I would be gently insubordinate from time to time if the school's mm -hmm. protocols don't allow me to do it, is huge. But it's a very scary thing. And I think that one of the great things leaders can do is I will support you. I will have your back if you want to try this new thing that's out of alignment with what everyone else is doing, yet you've shown me in a very compelling argument that it will actually be more effective mm. for how these students learn. Go for it. If you're into the flash on television or in the comic books, it's basically run, Barry, run. You know, <laughs> you're, you're all over that. But I need you to be held accountable if I'm talking to the teacher about monitoring how it's going and letting me know. And, you know, on what basis you're making this stuff, but I will be your loudest supporter for that. And I'll run interference for you, you know, so you can do your job. That, that That's fine. But I just want to be a partner in this. Now, the other part of it is, you know, there are things beyond my expertise, you know, much better. So do I hire good people or at least cultivate people to become their better selves such that I can trust their professional decisions? There are a lot of teachers today when I, I'll just say, hey, can you tell me in your lessons where you're developmentally appropriate or where you're ethical with modern instruction or something like that? And they're hard pressed. Like, can I get back to you in a few days after I talk to some of my colleagues or if you're in a place where there are teacher unions after I talk to my union rep because they feel threatened? And I'm like, no, you should be able to tell me right away. Here's what I know about third graders or high school, you know, 10th grade. And here's what I'm doing in my lessons as a result of that knowledge. That's not seeping through. It's a bit more, I just need to survive the day. And it's all about management. But they don't realize that there are three ifs. You know, it's proactive, interactive, reactive in instruction and in discipline. And the proactive side is that is you are developmentally appropriate, teaching the way the mind best learns. And you keep abreast of that. 
Mm-hmm. Interactive is our relationships. Are you, are you teaching to create a positive advocacy, a mutual ethos with one another? And reactive, hey, what are the cons- what what are kind of the rules and consequences when a student goes astray? How do you react to that so it builds a constructive response? One of the things I just drives me nuts is that teachers settle for incompetence. And incompetence, not learning it, is not maturing or preparatory for what's to come. So they'll say, well, you used your time poorly, so no redos. Like, dude, you were hired to teach so they learn, not to play gotcha. You know, we talked a little bit about that in 2017, I know. But that's the idea of having a principle. And then, of course, how do I make that come to life? Not just make it a sugary, sweet platitude. I say out there, but I really don't live up to it. So, Mm -hmm. again, it kind of goes back to let me help teachers minimize their hypocrisy. I love saying, what do you really believe in teaching? Now, what's your evidence you actually live up to that? How Mm -hmm. does it manifest in the classroom? And then having that conversation, wow, does it take a deeper dive? And then teachers realize, wow, I I always said that, but I didn't know what that really meant. Let me do a deeper dive. And it becomes so meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. And they find a new joy. Every time a teacher is empowered, they have skill sets. As Tom Gusky and others would say, they find psychological reward. And they're more hungry, you know, for the next. And they're very, they're much more open to any kind of critique or coaching that might come along. But I just have to get them through the door, you know, as, and, and be as inviting as, as I can. So we're going to pivot right now and jump into a discussion about leadership. And... When I think of leadership, I think that school leaders, particularly principals, have a key role to play in setting direction and creating a positive school culture, including the proactive school mindset, as well supporting and enhancing staff motivation and the commitment needed to foster improvement and promote success for schools, especially in challenging circumstances. Just think about COVID the last few years and the challenges that school leaders faced, as well as teachers in the classrooms and uh, parents and, and students. But what I've come to understand through my podcast, in particular interviewing amazing leaders around the world, is that the best educational leaders know how to establish these conditions with consistency in their organizations. They fail, they learn, they change, and they constantly reflect on their own actions in order to assess the true impact they are having. As Brene Brown's work is all about vulnerability and being courageous in the face of challenge, school leaders' ability to empower others around them is the key to success in their organizations, as opposed to school leaders who operate from a stance of being the knowledge authority who dominate their organizations through measures of control and compliance. This type of leadership style simply has no place in education nowadays. In this part of the conversation, Rick and I unpack his fundamental philosophy around school leadership and what the best leaders do to consistently move their organization forward in positive, productive, and empowering ways. And when you think about your own work and the things you've seen and observed, and you've already mentioned a a little bit about impactful leadership, but what is it that separates great leaders from average ones based on what you're currently seeing in the field, not 10 years ago, but what you're currently seeing in the field, what separates great leaders from average ones? Well, I don't want to, you know, again, repeat what others have said, but I think it really comes down to you have a clear vision beyond just today. So, you know, you, you see the bigger picture of how this fits in the larger scheme of things rather than getting lost in, in the roots or the minutia of that day and tearing that down. You are very attentive. They're, they're great leaders, very attentive to teach your emotional and mental health. I have seen they go out of their way. And what they often will do that uh, seen this is they make mental illness or mental despair or mental challenges 
normalized and they, they might even share their own journey with that. And they make it very safe to seek assistance without the judgment, without the public reckoning. But they find a way to do that so that we recognize that. I mean, here in the States, we've actually had teachers submit bomb threats and get into violent acts in a school because they're so stressed out. Their, their scruples are falling away and they're acting impulsively. And it, it's just a scary time. And teachers are dealing with all of this. So what am I going to do? You might be familiar with the phrase. There's a thing called allostatic load, A-L-L-O, allostatic. And this is this blow, this constant bombardment, a ceaseless pressure and anxiety on the endocrine and nervous systems mm. from all kinds of different stresses in your life. You're, it's the idea of chronic stress versus occasional stress. Stress can be very healthy, you know, a healthy dose yeah. of stress, but chronic stress or exposure to people who are chronically stressed creates an allostatic load and you develop more asthma. There's a physiological response, it suppressed immune system, but you lose the capacity to be flexible and adapt to new, even just small challenges mm. that come up, small problems, and it just falls apart. So I'm quite mindful of what well, member Bishop Desmond Tutu. And it is mm-hmm. wonderful phrase about we keep pulling kids out of the river, but maybe somebody should go up river and find out why they're falling in the in the water in the first place. <laughs> yeah. So the idea that you would look at institutional things and as a leader, I would try to remove or lessen the allostatic load or provide skills to help you navigate this particularly rough part. So it might be you're taking care of your own ailing parents and your own home mm-hmm. while you are also trying to teach. And do this stuff, or you're worried about a myriad of things, economic downturns, you know, whatever it might be uh, that you're doing. How can I help do that? Because that's going to make you a better person in the classroom. When you're not your full self in the classroom, it's a less than effective lesson. And so, how can I help you be your full self? So, one of the things that we've done on many campuses, uh, but it's something that I coach, is developing a faculty wellness program. So, you can get the six points of wellness if you want, but we literally map out what is one mile and two mile or kilometers where if you, that, that's where you are um, inside the school and outside the school for you to go work out during your planning period. And there's a shower dedicated for you. And at faculty meetings, we don't serve donuts and muffins and cookies and cake because that just puts you all to sleep. Uh, yeah. We will do some things that actually keep you awake. There's water, there's fruit, there's vegetables, there's cheese, whatever it might be, nuts if there's no nut allergy. But we really talk about you taking care of yourself. And if we pass by your your classroom during your planning period and you're doing yoga, we're cool. We're in mm-hmm. fact, we're very impressed yeah. or you're doing some kind of mindfulness rather than sleepily grading five essays or whatever it might be, because there'll be more of you to give to students later in the day as you go through that. So this idea of paying attention to it really separates a lot of the, the, the advanced educa- leaders that I see mm-hmm. education. The other, another element that I see over and over is they are really well-versed in instructional practice. There's not, they're not just building managers. They try to keep up. And if they don't have a sense of it, they go to a member of their faculty or two members and say, could you just give me a tutorial or recommend some resources on this grading thing or reading in content areas or Google Docs? Mm -hmm. I want to get up to speed on that so I can be more helpful in my facilitation of others, more knowledgeable in that. And that just blows my mind. That's wonderful. Then the last thing, I guess, and there might be more things that come up as we talk, but the last thing that occurs right now is that idea that these people who are quite advanced as leaders and highly effective, they have learned this art and craft and science of getting goals achieved through other people rather than thinking that they have to do it themselves. It'd just be faster if I just did it. Mm -hmm. Unilaterally, I declare it. So you must be doing it. And then they spend all the time putting out fires when people erupt back. And as we may have mentioned before, I don't know if we did, but one of the things where that, that we react is a normal chronic default when you have to accept a new idea in teaching and let go of one that was, that was actually found to be ineffective. There is sting and hurt in that. And the normal response is irritation, is crankiness. And so I worry when people don't push back. They don't sort their thinking by saying, yeah, but. And you think, oh, they're coming across as not supportive or not a team player. No, they're doing exactly what they should be doing to clarify this. I need to honor that, you know, that grief of accepting new ideas. I wrote a, a whole article on that. I think that's powerful. And these, these leaders that are so good, they help collectively, you know, create the goals, but they realize, oh, wait, I have, I'm going to study the skill set of how I help other people 
move that direction, not I just do it from a high and I, you know, I get the credit. And the other the part of that that comes to mind right away is, you know, in a good marriage, at every possible turn, you always make your partner look better. And so at every possible turn, I will show what the faculty has done, what the teachers have done, not what I have done. And there are a lot of leaders that I see that are mediocre, that are very quick to parade their accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to let me now show you what my teachers have done. And here's the proof that it's working. So as much as we can do that, I would do that. I think I think that's probably it. The other only idea that you probably already know is, is that they remain, um, they, they find a way to renew themselves every single year yeah. rather than just, here we go again. I can't believe I'm doing this for the eighth year or the 12th year or whatever it is. They find a way to let go of something they thought that with which they grew complacent, but to find new oxygen every year, a new vitality in what they're doing rather than just go through the motions. And there's a lot of different books out there and TED Talks on how to do that. That's my early response to that. I don't know how that dovetails with what you're thinking. Well, I was also thinking as you said this, you know, you think of some schools and organizations that have large leadership teams and there are some leaders doing amazing work and there are other leaders who are very complacent and, you know, the standards you walk past are the standards you accept. So if, yeah, if a senior leader walks past another leader who's i'm not saying incompetent but really and it's not about pulling their weight either but it's about doing deep meaningful work how do you um how can leaders hold other leaders accountable do you know what i mean rather yeah. than walking past it and accepting it that becomes you as the coach again yeah so i go in and you don't know what my opinion is i just say tell me about that Mm -hmm. Did it achieve what you wanted to achieve? If you were to do it again, would you revise anything? That's the whole world of coaching. You know, what were your goals? How do you know you met your goals? That sort of thing. And, um, you know, is there is there anything to what that person said? And I'm just getting you to do that discussion as you're doing it. But you reminded me as you were talking right there, and this is a part of my response. It's modeling, too. Mm -hmm. So the great leaders I know, if they want teachers to differentiate, they literally differentiate the professional development. They don't do one size fits all. If they want teachers to do descriptive feedback techniques, they literally use the same feedback techniques on the teachers so they feel the positives and they're more likely to try that with their students. They feel the warmth and the, the collaborative, constructive nature of it. So I model, but then I share the behind the scenes thinking. So they see that I'm not out of alignment, that I'm living my authentic beliefs. If I say this, I also do it myself. And so I will share my screw ups and how I try to make amends or, you know, go back and change that. But I see that uh, we, we're near the Norfolk Naval Base here. And one of my friends is, was a, made commander of a, of a nuclear submarine. And we got a chance to go down there to his installation as the commander. Well, as a CO, what he was, a commanding officer. And he said, you know, there are times where I really wouldn't worry about that. It's just a really small thing. But as a commander, I have to set the standard. So if it was just a friendly social time, I would skip it. They they dropped some of the floor. I didn't see it. Or they didn't clean up something thoroughly. I would let it go because there's other things that are more important. But I can't do that because the standard is what they will aspire to. So the idea that I say all this stuff, I have to take a step back and go, holy crow, do I do that myself? And where do I have proof I do that? And where is that visibly made to faculty? That it's got, it has to be out there. So the modeling is another example or element of that outstanding great leadership that I've seen in today's world. But that can be scary because it's not the normal stuff that maybe some building managers would do. As we move toward a close of this episode, Rick will share some great books that I think you as the listener may benefit from reading, but he will also share some final thoughts about his focus and vision in moving forward with his work. As well, he lets you know where you can find him and his work and get in touch with him.
when you um, think about the work you're doing right now, what projects do you want people to know about or current work or writing, like just anything you want to share with the, the audience right now? Well, as I might have been 20 in 2017, I am still hot and heavy on education as an ethical enterprise. And a lot of times faculties just don't talk about morals or ethics at all because it just gets into values and faith and politics and all this stuff. And we cannot afford for us to all be ostriches, you know, about that. We literally have to be candid for the sake of the next generations, let alone our own. And so the idea, one of the things I work with leadership is it's okay to lean forward and stare people in the eyes and say, is this the ethical thing we do? Now, some people are like, oh, we could have gotten out of here early, but you had to be philosophical. And I think people, they lose sight of the larger perspective because they're so lost in the minutia. And when you talk about morals and ethics, you do summon that stamina to see it through logistics that would elude you, as we mentioned back in 2017. And so the idea of grading, uh, reading instruction, whatever it is, technology incorporation or not, whether or not it's ethical and lives up to the professionalism. I've seen so many teachers use technology for 20 or 30 minutes of classroom and a very quick chalk drawing in 30 seconds with a two minute conversation afterwards would have been more effective. And so I've, I've got to ask them and push that envelope. Hey, does this advance your cause? Or are you doing the tech incorporation just because it's tech? And you have to understand the mind is still can understand these other things. And then what do we know? I, one of my huge big uh, new uh, focus areas is sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. And now it's really affecting memory formation, uh, classroom demeanor, but, uh, teachers and students. But it's having this really huge damage because, again, 24-7 access to screens and um, a part of that is, you know, you're spending all that time online and social media. It's an over-dependence on the need for external validation. I only have value in relation to what other people say. And that's creating a mental illness, a sense of depression. If I don't get 17 likes in 10 minutes, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm really hot and heavy into the ethics of it. And grading is huge. And then the other part of it is what we mentioned before is this idea of racism, um, uh, Muslimism, homophobia, the idea of otherness and how that takes away from what we know about good education, leadership, community, the dynamics, and really our future about that. So I'm really intensely into that and talking openly about it in keynotes and presentations and how it affects things. And then with that, leaders are saying, but we need skills. Like we need to know what to say because it's a day or three later and we go, I should have, would have, could have said this. So one is summoning the courage to do this, but two is developing practical skill sets to really call in, if sometimes they need to call out, but to call in somebody who is advancing unaware or aware and overt bias or prejudice against something. And then when I confront them on it or talk about it, they don't accept that. So I developed the skill set. I write about this a lot. I talk about this a lot. I think those are really going to move us forward, let alone my whole emphasis on let's keep up with how the mind learns, yeah. you know, is, is what's, what's the latest in cognitive load theory. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's get into that a little bit more or constructivism or the wonderful website, retrievalpractice.org about retrieving things and how we teach kids to memorize things for long-term. I need to put that in the hands of teachers and then they're empowered and they find vitality in their class because what they're doing is actually working. And they're like, oh, this is why I went into school. Yeah. Why did I went into teaching? I love this. I would like to be able to do that as much as I possibly can. Get teacher voices out there, but to make sure they're really competent in finding that oxygen. What's the best book you've read recently that's really, you know, not changed you, but um, yeah, just had an impact? And I'll narrate Man, to the audience as, as Rick, I read so many. I'm looking around my office. I know. That's right. I was going to narrate and say Rick is now scanning his bookshelf of hundreds <laughs> of books. Um, let's see. Well, I will tell you a really cool book that I have read recently is How the Word is Passed. Oh, nice. Uh, by Clint Smith. Okay. All right. And it's about that. the guy went around to Civil War uh, in an African American. Um, historical sites and interviewed people who were there to see how certain places are living up to the promise and certain ones are not. But let me see if I can find one because I just came back from vacation 
and I read on vacation. Let's see. Where, where was vacation? Oh, this one's pretty good. I started reading it. I'm liking it so far. The Language of Possibility. Okay. Uh, by Michael Roberts. Uh, the Ford is by Anthony Muhammad. Anthony Muhammad stuff is really good. I highly recommend it. But Language of Possibility, How Teachers' Words Shape School Culture oh, and nice. Student Achievement. Let's see if there's another one here. Oh, this is a little bit different, but uh, learning in public, uh, it's a Courtney Martin, and it's lessons for a racially divided America from my daughter's school, and it's how people are imposing, you know, a, a, a parents are getting much more uh, emboldened to go in and say, let me tell you how to do your teaching, you know, all this <laughs> stuff, because it's somehow it's scary to them. And so I've been doing a lot of that, but let me find a, a book on the teaching practice that I've really liked. Let's see. Oh, I'm assuming everybody's read this one, but I just reminded myself of it. Atomic Habits. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, that's a popular one by a lot of people, but I just reread it. And then I will just remind you, this one was really good. I read it this year. It just came out in June. The oh, Sleep okay. Deprived Teen. By Lisa Lewis. Lisa Lewis. Yeah. yeah. Really opens up this world. And then the school has an obligation, I think, to overtly teach parents and students about the value of sleep in yeah. their growth, their learning process, their capacity to uh, accept change and, mm -hmm. and be flexible. And we'll do one more. Yes, I'm reading a lot. I know. Uh, golly. Where was vacation recently? Oh, my wife and I hiked through Oregon. Oh, nice. And then we did... Uh, Oh, this one was good. I like this one. Um, we hiked also in, in Colorado at Red Rocks because oh, nice. uh, my son lives in Denver. So we drove up there. It was like 100 degrees everywhere we went. And we were going to raft in the Rogue River of Oregon. And the water solo, we couldn't raft. So we just hiked like every day. We did Crater Lake, you know, and, and we did the Pacific Crest Trail. We'd also about two and a half weeks. Oh, so sweet. it was just hiking. And every single day we would go out and do it. Had a great time. And now we're back in Virginia. Literally just got back. Uh, Wednesday night, so a night and a half ago, uh, and it was it, it it was just wonderful. And I turned my my laptop off like the whole two weeks. Sweet, best thing I ever did. <laughs> um, anyway, this one I like Adam Grant's Think Again. Oh yeah, I got yeah. That well I, I've enjoyed. Yeah. I just read it recently. So if you're looking for books, Rick is read and Rick thinks is actually le are legit. This would be one. There awesome. are other ones, but I don't want to take up everybody's time. No, that's good. I've got a whole list of them. That's awesome. Uh, so in closing, can you tell people where they they can find your website and where they can find you on Twitter? I don't know if your first account on Twitter still exists, but <laughs> yeah, it's still you, out there. You got it. Uh, yeah. So everybody needs to know that it's just at Rick Warmly, spell my name correctly, <laughs> R-I-C-K-W-O-R-M-E-L-I. And then you add a two because okay. I'm so creative. That's how I invented my second Twitter account. Just added after, it to. after being hacked in 2017. After being right? hacked, right? <laughs> so you can go look at warmly Rick War at Rick Warmly, and there's a lot of stuff there. But it's really, if you want the live version and more recent stuff, the past six seven years, it's added to. And then my website is uh, www then dot rickwarmly .com. Easy enough. And then can I do my email? Yes, please. So the email's kind of long, so we want to make sure we get that out there. So it's Rick at and then Rick Warmly, like it's one word. So Rick at Rick Warmly dot on Microsoft. So that's one word on Microsoft put together dot com. I am on Office 365. So you might recognize that if you're on Office 365 as well. And that's it. Okay. Well, great. Thank you. I'm going to include all of that in the show notes. It's been uh, wonderful to connect with you again, Rick. I, I appreciate our, our conversations. We've stayed in touch you know, just a few, you know, messages back and forth over the years, but it's really good to see you again and, and have a chat. And I'm reminded about our, our great chat in 2017, which I'll put in the show notes as well for anybody listening to this one for the first time they can, um, <clears throat> or listening to us for the first time, they can go back and listen to that one as well. So yeah, thanks for your time. Hey, thanks for what you're doing to help all the leaders. We really need people like you, you know, holding the lantern, lighting the path forward. Thank you for yeah, that. I appreciate that. I'm going to close off the show and then we'll just say goodbye. Everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Rick Warmly. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Okay, hang on, Rick. I'm just going to stop there.
Okay, everyone, thanks so much for being with Rick and I today. I hope this episode has you reflecting on your own work in education and what it is you may need to do more of or less of in order to be the best version of yourself possible to ultimately make the difference that you desire within your own role. As always, thanks for listening and for sharing this episode with anyone who you feel will benefit from tuning in. May you continue to do great work continue to challenge yourself in what is possible and impact the future one life at a time. Thanks for listening and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Mm-hmm.